Hello, and welcome to Elantum Digital's Publishing by the Numbers, where we help authors and self-publishers create quality books and build successful self-publishing businesses. Hi, guys, and welcome to the Publishing by the Numbers podcast. I'm Jana S. Brown, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, CJ Anaya. Hi, CJ. Hello. Virginia is off this week. She decided that at the time of this recording, she would rather sleep than come and play with us. Why anybody would rather sleep than come and play with us, I do not know. This is podcast episode number seven. And today we are going to talk more about anthologies. So we got into anthologies a little bit last week, and we kind of gave you the sneak peek that we were going to have an anthology expert come and join us. And we have done that. So joining us today is Lynn Worthen. Um, Lynn is amazing and one of my near and dear friends. So I've known Lynn for many years. We stopped counting at a certain point, but that does not decrease her awesomeness in any way, shape or form. So we'll give you just a little bit of a background on Lynn, and then we're going to launch into a rapid fire, throw questions at her, see her, watch her dodge and weave and all, all the good stuff. This is the fun part. Lynn has been a writer and a freelance editor for many, many years, and she's got all of the awards to prove it. She has been a winner of the Diamond Quill and the Silver Quill twice from the League of Utah Writers and has a stack of other awards. She writes under three different pen names in three different genres which can get really confusing, and yet she still continues to keep them all going. And she is also the brains behind Camden Park Press and their anthology editor, which means she is in charge of all things anthology. And rumor has it she is working on her 16th anthology, which, guys, if you even made a run at one anthology, you know that 16 is, like, immense and immortal. People don't do 60 anthologies unless they have this down to the finest of fine sciences. And Lynn has got all of that going for her. So, hi, Lynn. Welcome to the show. So, thank you. And you are too kind. <laughs> we gave you a little bit of an introduction, but I always like letting our guests also give some of their own introduction for the things that we either missed or got wrong or that your introduction is funnier than mine. So, let's kick off with that and say, you know, who are you? What brings you to this whole publishing industry? Um, why are you hanging out with the likes of us? Uh, well, who am I? You mentioned I write under multiple names, and so often I will just say I am Legion. Um, I uh, have, you know, wide-ranging interests, and I just love reading. I've been reading since before I can remember. So, you know, it, it was just natural that I would end up gravitating into publishing in some form or another, whether as a writer or an editor or a publisher. And, hey, I try to do as a trifecta and do all three. Um, and, you know, mostly manage it okay. Um, as far as how I came to be on this, I think it's just because, you know, I got addicted to putting anthologies together and somebody caught wind of it. Hey, Donna. That's how that works. <laughs> yes, full disclosure, guys, I occasionally copy edit for Lynn's anthologies, and I might actually have stories in a few of them. Um, and yeah. I enjoy yeah. that. It's It's tremendously fun. So, um, let's move on and CJ jump in here at any point. Otherwise I'm going through our list of questions, but you know, you're, you, Oh, you I'll have, have, I'll have plenty. I'll have a question or two. Definitely. Okay. Or, I'm going to want to pick your brain. Right. 
she's so three here, or six. <laughs> exactly. The, the brain's behind these things. All right. So, Lynn, what does it mean to be an anthology editor? What, what, how is that any different than, you know, we talk about freelance editors and we talk about editors at traditional presses and there's all of these different kinds of editors. What's an anthology editor? What do you, what do, you do? An anthology editor is a cat herder. Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> you go through the slush for whatever the theme is for that particular collection and pick the things that seem like not only are they great stories that I like, but that will also work together. Um, it's kind of like building a recipe. You can't just say, well, I like cinnamon and I like steak and put them together and know that they will go together properly. Uh, you know, it, it's a balancing act. Um and uh, and then it's well, I worked in the corporate world for a lot of times on multi-contributor projects, and working on an anthology is very much like that. There are just a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving pieces, and um, and it's a lot of fun. But you're really just trying to, um, I don't know, maybe I should call it, you know, maybe it's like building something out of Legos. You know, you're just grabbing all these pieces and hoping that what you end up with is something that other people will enjoy. Well, I've got a question about these anthologies. Yeah. You do each one. About how many submissions do you get on average? When because that's a lot to work through. Because you mentioned the slush pile. How about mm -hmm. how many? And is it just you reading them and deciding on on that? It is just it is just me reading them oh and deciding, <laughs> and and the number of the, of submissions I will get will vary depending on the theme and who I've opened the call to. On an open call, I have received as many as close to 200 entries from submissions, usually for somewhere between 15 and 20 openings in the anthology. Um, for a more limited call, when I say, you know, this, like the one I'm working on right now, I life kind of got in, in the way of me putting the call out as early as I had intended to, so I sent the call out to a smaller audience a smaller, more targeted audience. And I ended up with about three dozen submissions and then didn't find all of what I was looking for, reopened it to a different group of people and got another two or three dozen submissions. So, you know, again, the number of submissions you will get will depend on the size of the pool that you've thrown, the, thrown your hook into and also the theme. Um, some themes just are more attractive to writers than others, oddly, um, I think it was the uh, the Poe retellings anthology was the biggest in terms of the number of submissions I had. And there were over 200 submissions on that one. But Cat Ladies of the Apocalypse had nearly that many. Mm -hmm. So, you wow. know, and then um, and then you just I just read through them and I've, I've got reading through them down to kind of a science. So but I've done a, I've worked with a lot of edit, of anthology editors over the years and so learned learned a lot from watching them and listening to their trials and tribulations. Okay. Do you read every single story? Um all I the read way every through? single story. I do not read every single story all the way through. Um I go on a three strikes you're out basis. Um when I am reading and something pushes me away from the story, that's one strike. I keep on going. If, if I'm pushed away from the story a second time, that's two strikes. You get to that third line, I set the story aside. Life is too short. 
And, you know, you may have picked up a wonderful thing from, you know, halfway through the story on. If I never get to it, it doesn't matter if your opening doesn't work. Okay, for Cat Ladies of the Apocalypse, I knew I was going to need a zombie story, at least one. I did get one. But I also, I am not a fan of zombie stories. So for that, I simply said, okay, oh, this is a zombie story. I will read five pages before I say, this is not my, my thing, and you're out. If you make me read more than five pages, then you go into the maybe bucket and are not automatically kicked out because I don't like zombie stories. And uh, there were about five stories that made me read past five pages. I put them in my maybe bucket and then came back to them on the second pass, brought that down to two stories, and then had to choose between them. Okay. So, um but, uh, you know, every, every editor has their own way of deciding how much of a story they will read. But for me, if you're not holding my interest, if you're not, if you're, or if as I'm reading, I'm going, you know, this is kind of fun, but it's going to take a lot of work to get it ready for edit or ready for publishing. I'm not going to keep going. Which I think is a great point for our listening audience. Um, Lynn and other editors do not want to see your rough drafts because... Oh, no. they, it, it takes too much time. And um, Lynn uniquely, this, this is something that I really love about her. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to her is somebody who very often puts out multiple anthologies in a year. And that's unique. Lots of times when you see these big anthology calls, it's maybe one a year or one every 18 months. And Lynn, is it two that went out this year? Uh, witches of a Certain Age and The Holiday Hijinks. Yeah. And, and Right. This year is yeah. a, a slow year for me, anthology speaking. Usually I try to get three. Uh, this year was two. Mm-hmm. So three in a year means that, you know, your timetables have to be really tight, which means your authors who are bringing mm-hmm. you stories, they got to be mostly ready. So leading mm-hmm. into that, because you're doing so many in a year, that herding cats has got to be probably organized within a fraction of inches. So how do you organize that many cats and that many stories? I mean, I saw <laughs> Mythbusters and they tried chasing cats around with umbrellas and stomping at them. What, what is it you do to make all of this come together so you can possibly hit those deadlines? Magic? Um, <laughs> I believe magic. Magic is a totally <laughs> acceptable answer. Yeah, no, it's, it's basic project management. Um, I use spreadsheets, um, lots of spreadsheets, and for every, to, to bring a story from reading it or from receiving it all the way through to including it and publishing it, there are a whole bunch of steps that are required. It has to be read. It has to be, you know, I make a note of what I think of the story. Um, if I if I accept it or not, then it move, continues to move on through. Have I sent an acceptance letter to the author? Have I received, uh, have I sent them the contract, received the contract back? Have I started, you know, reformatting the manuscript, reading through the manuscript to do any, any edits? Um, all of those things, there are, I think I counted it once. There's about 80 tasks that have to be done per story in order to move that story through the process to the final publication. And that those tasks have to be repeated for every single story in the, in the project. And so I simply build a spreadsheet that has all of the author names and story names on one side, and then the columns across with the, the different tasks that, uh, that the project, that the stories have to run through. I use a lot of color coding and just marking off as each story goes through that task um, so that I can keep track and see at a glance 
if everything is moving along, if something is delayed because I use color coding um, so that I can keep track myself. I also make that spreadsheet available to my authors um, for view only so that they can see at a glance, oh, I missed something, I'm behind. Um, but uh, that, And that's not something that most editors will do. I run a very, very open process with my authors. Most editors work through that process behind the scenes and the authors don't see it. Um, I communicate with the authors quite a bit also to keep them enthused, to keep them engaged, and to make sure we keep things moving along. And I'll do that through a Facebook authors group, but also through numerous emails. I think that's impressive because it gives um, the authors uh, more involvement at the project mm -hmm. management level, even though they're not actually managing it, they are still seeing uh, how it's going, you know? And I think yeah. they're more connected to it. And therefore, like you said, a little more engaged and a little more enthused. And I think probably, even though you're herding cats and chasing them, perhaps you're doing it a little less than some people who are just keeping it closer to the, you know, to themselves. Because for me, I would actually really excel in that kind of a scenario, having a spreadsheet, because I love spreadsheets too, and I need to be managed. We all know, Jana knows this, CJ needs to be managed. It's, it's true, CJ needs to be managed. To be managed. We, we all have access to her calendar so that we can adjust things for her because sometimes she forgets to do it. It is Virginie's very favorite thing and she will be so sad that she is not here to connect with another spreadsheet yeah. calendar lover. It, it's all, all of the sorrows. But I think you have to know your weaknesses as an author, right? That's one of mine. And so it makes me super happy that idea of being able to see it all unfold and, and being have multiple check-ins with people who are running projects like that. So I bet, a I don't know, for some reason, I, I think that would make it run a little more smoothly rather than the usual editor just chasing and trying to find people. And there's a lot of disconnect there. Um, so I like well, that. Well, even the editors, even the editors that I have, that I, did a lot of learning from they have their project management tools whatever version that they form that they take but it's not always transparent to the authors right. um, i found that having that author engagement made my life easier um, not everyone works that way mm -hmm. but um, you know the spreadsheets and the author engagement help me stay on task help me keep up to date and remind me oh, you know what, I haven't looked at that for two days, three days. Is something happening that I need to get back on target with also? So it's as much for my own cat herding poke myself benefit as it is for keeping the, the uh, authors rounded up. Speaking of authors, um, how far mm -hmm. spread are your authors? Because I, I know that I've read some of them where I've seen folks that are coming from England, folks that are coming from this, that, and the other. So Again, this is kind of unique because a lot of anthologies are very local, um, but it seems like you really push the calls out to get anybody from anywhere. What, what's the furthest away that you've received a, a, a story from? I haven't tracked mileage, but I've received stories from Italy and Germany, um, Australia and New Zealand. I haven't received anything from India or any of the... Uh, Countries, Japan, uh, China, Korea, I haven't received anything from there, but um, yeah, down in, uh, down under and all over Europe, um, England, England, Ireland, Germany, yeah, I've gotten from Germany, uh, not France, but Italy, so, and then all over North America, um, a lot from Canada, 
don't see any reason. A friend asked me, said, don't you know enough writers that you can just, you know, reach out to them individually? I'm like, yeah, but I don't, there are people who write great stories that I don't know. So I'll throw the doors open wide and, and see what I get. And I've gotten some wonderful stories from people I never would have ever known existed if I had just kept it to being, uh, ask people that I know. Okay, so there you go, international listeners. We're going to get to a point here. We're going to ask Lane about how to follow her in order to get in on all of her calls. <laughs> she wants you. She wants you to send oh, yeah. stuff. And it's so lovely that because I remember the submission days where you had to send everything in paper. And so trying to get an international audience in on that was lots harder. But that's no longer a barrier to entry because they can email you, right? It's just a send to the email, mm-hmm. follow your submission guidelines. Just send to the email. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that side of the process. So if an author desperately has a story that they want to do or they want to write for an anthology for you, how do they find out, you know, what you're doing? How do they turn it in? What what is the author side of this whole process? Um, Okay, as I post the uh, calls on the Camden Park Press website with all of the details of what I'm looking for, if there are specific things I do not want to see, like for the the uh, most recent anthologies, while I might want them to be contemporary, I do not want to see anything reflecting COVID or politics or things like that. And so if there's something I specifically do not want to see, I will list that and I will boot stories that have that as soon as it shows up. Um, but I will list what I'm looking for how to how to submit it in terms of, you know, how do I want the manuscript formatted? How do I want you to submit it in the email so that it gets into the right bucket when it when it hits my mailbox? Um, it's really very straightforward. And, um, or at least from my perspective, um, basically write a good story, present it professionally and send it to me. And um, there, I post them on the Camden Park Press website. Um, and then I link to them on the Camden Park Press Facebook group. I will often uh, have send my calls out to um, the submission grinder and to Duotrope so that people who are beyond my personal reach might have a chance to see them. Um, I don't have any open running now you know, on either of those platforms, but as a story comes or as an anthology comes up, then I reach out to them and say, Hey, I've got something new and they post it. So um, I try and make it so that anybody who's looking to write or sell a story has a chance to submit. How do you decide the theme? Like how, what, what, how do you land <laughs> on this idea of, okay, this anthology is going to be about this. And then is it inspiration? Do you have crazy dreams? Um, what, how do you decide that? Uh, what do I want to read that's not on my shelf? Um, really, sometimes it's random conversations. Cat Ladies was a random conversation on the internet um, that people were wanting to read about the apocalypse. People were wanting to read about cats, and we just sort of shoved those together like chocolate and peanut butter. Um, <laughs> other times, um, you know, I follow a uh, Facebook group of paranormal women's fiction authors, but they were all writing novels. And I love to read novels, but I have more time to read short stories. And so I, uh, but not too many of them had short fiction available. So I thought, hell, I'll do a paranormal women's fiction short anthology. And that's how we ended up with witches of a certain age. What have you found um, 
is another reason why people are drawn to anthologies, not just because we've got short stories, but what are the benefits of that for readers going into anthologies? If I'm reading a novel, it's going to keep me up all night. Yeah. <laughs> if I want to sleep, I can reach for one of the anthologies on my nightstand and I can read a short story or three and still get some sleep. Be able to go to so, sleep. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> it's snacking on snacking on stories. I can read a short story you know, in a much shorter time. And so just like it takes an author less time to write a short story, it takes a reader much less time to read one. But you've got something that you can read while you're waiting for a doctor's appointment or while you're wanting to go to sleep or any of those little slivers of time where you want to read something, but you don't want to get wrapped up in a 400-page novel. Mm -hmm. You know, you just want a snack. Yeah. And and so for me, that's that's one of the fun things. And then also, it's a wonderful way to discover new authors. Um, there are many times when I have read an anthology and then gone out and looked for another for one of those authors and said, hey, I want to read more of, the, of what that person wrote, because that was kind of fun. That was kind of cool. And so it's a really good way to speed date, <laughs> for lack of a better word. I love that. I like that too. Speed dating for new authors. Oh, I'm using it. That's yeah. great. <laughs> well, and I think one of the other really great things about anthologies is we hear all the time from our listeners and, and from up and coming authors. Well, what if somebody steals my idea? And, and this is something that I'm sure we'll talk about in more depth on another podcast, but, but there's that fear out there. And I think an anthology is a really great example of how you drop one theme or one idea in front of a mm -hmm. whole bunch of writers and you can see 10, 12, 15, however many stories are in the anthology, different ways that people took that idea on. And it yeah, always yeah. makes me kind of go, oh, well, you know, you really don't have to worry about someone stealing their idea because if I put the same idea in front of the three of us, you're going to get completely different things. And they're all going to be fascinating. And I love seeing yeah. some of the things people come up with that I'm just like, I never would have gone there, but now it is so awesome. <laughs> yeah. I want to know if you have ever gotten stories that were just way off the mark. And it was kind of like, you know, just like one of those slush pile moments where you're like, what? <laughs> like, do you ever get a lot of stories that just don't quite, they just sent them in, like they slipped them in there, hoping that you wouldn't notice that it had nothing to do with the theme that you were asking for? Uh, you mean like the story submitted to my dragon anthology that didn't have any dragons in it? Yes, that one. Yes, like that one. It had a, it had it had a unicorn, but no <laughs> dragons. Uh, <laughs> my uh, missed the target there. Kind of missed the dartboard. Um, I don't get a lot. They do happen. Um, I am pretty clear on my calls about not wanting anything that is political. I got one that was a such a political rant that I'm just like, really, yeah. Um, I am um, not because I have any issue with various levels of spicy or heated romance, but most of my anthologies are on the sweet to medium level of heat. Mm -hmm. I have gotten very spicy romance submissions and gone, okay, we have different definitions of sweet and toss, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, for witches of a certain age, my the main character protagonist needed to be 40 or over because witches of a certain age. Right. And I got teenage witches. And I'm like, um, 
no, just because your mom is mentioned in on page seven does not qualify. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, read the call, read the submission guidelines. We write them for a reason. And, and so I don't get a lot that are really, really way out there, but they, they happen. And it's mostly because someone didn't read the guidelines carefully. And so, you know, I mean, I have an entire little presentation that rant and that uh, other editors and I share often about, you know, people who just didn't read the guidelines and uh, our horror, our non-guideline non following horror stories that can be really bizarre. Oh, maybe like put your name on your manuscript somewhere. Oh, no. <laughs> Do that? Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Oh yeah, it happens. It happens. You mean so. you don't want it in Comic Sans? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, it's easy enough to to flip a font and everything, but I'd rather not waste the extra few seconds that it takes when I've got 200 stories to read. Mm -hmm. So if you can present it to me professionally, I'm more likely to get farther in it than if I'm starting out by going, okay, this person clearly doesn't have a clue what they're doing because they sent me something in, you know, eight point comic sans and, um, and purple. Why? <laughs> you know, so no, no colors, no colors, no, color. no, no, no colors, please. Um, and so I'll, I'll flip it and I'll read until I get to my three strikes, but your first strike was in the poor person, poor presentation. Right. Um, another editor friend of mine back in the paper submission days said he could actually open the, open the manila envelope as he's pulling the manuscript out would go, yeah, I'm not reading that and put it in the rejection pile just from the poor presentation. So, you know, um, we wear glasses for a reason. We are reading way too much to want to read my minuscule font or poor font or fancy fonts. Just give me a very basic, you know, follow the, follow the submission guidelines, um, follow, use proper manuscript format, um, which if you don't know what manuscript format is, Google it. You will find a lot of discussion on it, but the uh, shun, S-H-U-N-N, um, Bill Sean, years ago, uh, we were in a writing group and we were all talking about that. And he actually wrote up basic standard manuscript format. He has since, I believe, updated it for electronic submissions um, and with different versions for novels versus shorter stories. But it's still a pretty good standard. Um, if you take a look at that, you will f and submit according to that, unless the guidelines have specified something different always follow the guidelines. But if they don't, if you use the shun manuscript format, you're not going to have an editor ding you on your on just the look of your manuscript. Hmm. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I'm like, we need to put that in the show notes. Because yeah. uh, if you didn't bring it up, I was gonna. Uh, and, and that really is a great manuscript format for all sorts of things. So we'll make yeah. sure that goes into the show notes. So let's hit on just a couple more technical things that people might have questions on. And I am not asking you to be a lawyer by any stretch of a speckled imagination, but you talked about that authors are going to sign contracts with you. 
what mm -hmm. kinds of things are in the contracts? What kinds of things should they look out for in an anthology contract that might be good or might be bad? Because you've got some good background on this, and I think it'll help people to know, you know, how, how do you get into an anthology without having a contract that keeps your rights forever and ever and, you know, good things and bad things? Well, and the rights is the most important part of it. Um, what rights is the anthology looking for? Um, in most cases, I'm looking for first anthology rights or first North America. Well, it used to be first North American serial rights. Now it's different because we're global. So I don't put that part in there, but I will go for first anthology rights, first publication rights um, on reprint contracts, then it's reprint rights. But um, so what rights are being looked for? The only right I need is the right to publish it in my anthology. I don't need all rights. If, uh, if you see a contract that's asking for all rights, send somewhere else, withdraw that submission. Do not sign that because then the anthology, whoever it is that's, that you've signed, uh, signed that over to, they own it, period. Lock, stock, and barrel. You've given away at the farm. Learn to understand what your rights are. Only give away the rights, the pieces, the little slivers of the pie that you need to give away in order to be able to publish in different forms. Um, so I ask for, for, you know, first rights or reprint rights, depending on the story. Um, I ask for a limited exclusivity. Um, my anthologies, I ask for a six-month exclusivity, meaning that you cannot have your story republished anywhere else during that period. Now, if it's a reprint, I don't ask for exclusivity, obviously, because it's already published somewhere else. I do have just sort of a handshake agreement with the author that, okay, please don't be publicizing the fact that you're published over here when we're publishing my novel or my anthology right now. Just let's put the promo on mine. Mm -hmm. But that's just a handshake agreement. That's not anything that's in the contract. Um, but exclusivity is you can't sell it someplace else while it's in mine. After that, I want ongoing rights to keep it in the anthology, even though the rights revert to you to do other things with. Now, because it's in one of my anthologies, you could not go and say, put it up on Kindle Unlimited because Amazon asks for exclusive. You can't put it anywhere else, but you can put it in something that is not on KU. You can sell it to another anthology or to a magazine that accepts reprints. You can give it away to your readers. You can do all kinds of other things. There's lots of other things you can do with that short story that don't require it to be just exclusive anywhere. Um, and so I spell out what rights I want, what rights, when you get uh, the rights reverting back to you and, you know, what I expect ongoing. Um, I ask for, um, let's see, uh, because I work with a distributor, I also include how the distribution is working and how the payment works. Donna, um, you see my contracts. What else am I? What am I missing? <laughs> you're you're <laughs> uh, doing so good. Line. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to read through the contract. I'm pretend the contract is on my glasses. It, it's on um, your glasses. So I, I want to. Yeah, I want to know what your byline is. How you want to be acknowledged or you know noted in the in mm -hmm. the story. Um, if it's a reprint, this isn't in the contract, but I do need whatever, wherever the story was first published so I can include that in the copyrights page of the anthology. Um, but that's pretty much it. My a short story contract doesn't need to be more than a couple of pages long. It's not like a novel contract, which might be a book in itself. 
um, <laughs> full of convoluted language. Um, a, a short story contract is very simply, yes, I agree to license you my story for this limited time period. Please use this name on it. I want the rights. I get the rights back at this point. It's governed by the laws of, you know, wherever it is governed by, blah, 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 you know, tiny bits of legalese. And then we both sign it and we're all happy. It, it's very simple, very straightforward. Um, I modeled my contract after some of the other contracts that I have signed as an author and have been very happy with. So one of the clauses that is now in my contracts um, that did not used to be, um, the uh, romance anthology that is no longer available for sale, it's no longer available because one of the authors wanted to withdraw her story. And that meant that the whole thing had to come down. Mm. Now it says that's not an option for you. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not going to just pull a story out and hurt everybody because one person decided they wanted to play a different game. If you, if you license your story to me, you've licensed your story to me and I'm going to leave that anthology up. You'll continue to get royalties for pretty much forever because I don't, again, it's not produce. I don't see any reason to take it down. I want, we want to keep those books out there. So. Yep. I'm, I'm still getting paid from the first one that I was in with you. I think we, we sold mm -hmm. some wings of change. It was on my list the other day when I looked at my statement. It's like, cool, that was like the very first one. And it's still, you know, it's not making me millions, mind you, but it's trucking yeah. along. And if I can go out to dinner based on all these cute little anthology things that have been going on for years, why not? Now, with yours, I still, get, I still get, I still get, re yeah, I still get uh, royalties off Mirages and Speculations, which was the very first one I did. And it still buys me coffee. So, and as long as it buys me coffee, I can keep doing more. <laughs> exactly. So. And now with all of your anthologies, they're based on royalty split, right? So yes, when people correct. are looking at payment, what are kind of the options that you've seen for anthologies? And then we'll turn it back over to CJ because I can see she has another burning question. <laughs> okay. On payment, and I have some very strong opinions about payment. Pay the authors, please. Always pay the authors. Um, I do not, when I look at a call, and I, I pay my authors on a royalty share basis because I am not made of money and it brings us and it has us all, you know, we all get an equal share of the proceeds from the anthology. So, and that's, that's noted in the contract that's shown on the spread, that production spreadsheet. Everybody knows how everybody is getting the same, same split. Um, I don't base it on, well, your story was X number of words. You get this much of a percent. Your story was short. You only get that. I've seen those. I walk away from those contracts because I'm sorry, life is too short. <laughs> um, but some people will do that. And that's, that's up to them. And some people are happy with, with that. I want this much of a share. I'll take that little of a share, whatever. You do you. Um, I current what they consider professional rate, I think it's eight cents a word now. Mm -hmm. It used to be, it was six cents a word for decades. Um, but it's now, I think, eight cents a word, although I have seen as high as 15, which is uncommon. Um, if they are, if you are being paid a certain amount per word, make sure, you know, um, be aware that's all you're going to get. You're probably, unless the contract specifies, you're probably not going to get royalties as well. Um, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. 
I have sold many, many stories where it's just a flat. I get a flat check for it and I'm very happy. You know, I spend a weekend writing a short story. I get three or four hundred dollars for it. I'm happy, (laughs) you know. Rates then start going, go down from there. Uh, three cents a word is common. Penny a word is common, especially for reprint stories. Reprints usually take a, get a whole lot lower payment because it's already been out there someplace else. Um, I do not write for anthologies or any kind of market that does not pay me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if there is no payment involved, if all I'm being paid in is exposure, I'm sorry, people die from exposure. Um, I, I, do not, I do not write for copies. I do not consider contributors' copies to be a payment. I offer contributors' copies. It's in my contract. I give contributors' copies to my authors, but I don't consider that payment. That's just something that is, should be, to my, my point of view, it should be standard operating procedure. The only times I write for free is if I am writing for a charity anthology. And then I'm not really writing for free. I'm writing to donate whatever proceeds go to the charity. And I have done that three, four times. I'm not sure. Um, but I have stories in you know, some charity anthologies where the funds are going to a particular cause that I believe in. But you need to know that going in. Um, I, do not, I do not write for free. I do not think authors should write for free. Um, if, if you are giving your story away as a gift, cool. If you're saying, well, but I would need to get my name out there and I don't, nobody knows me, so I can't, ex- shouldn't expect to be paid. Check, check that. Rethink that. You are doing the work. You have created something that other people want to read. You deserve to be paid. Here, here, and, okay. <laughs> and, and, when you're, paid. and when you're looking at, and when you're looking at markets, Look at the markets that will start at the top in terms of the amount of pay and work your way down. Don't do the, well, nobody knows me, so I have to only submit to these lower, low-paying markets. No, start at the top. I have, put, I have published, I mean, I'm not at the top. I, I have a good following, excuse me, a good following now of readers and, and readership for the anthologies I write, but I am a royalty share paying market. So we have a, you know, there's a limit as to how much you're going to make. Um, but if you're, especially if you're looking at um, uh, flat rate paying audience markets, you know, start at the top and work your way down. I have published dozen, two dozen different authors' first published stories in my anthologies. You know, if they had just done the, I can only submit to people who don't pay me because nobody knows me, nobody would know them still. Hmm. So, you know, you want to, you, you've done the work, get paid for it. You don't do this. We don't do this for free, even when we do it because we love it. I love that. That is, yes. I, I, could, I could go on on that rant for a while, but, you know, uh, <laughs> just look at, look up Harlan Ellison and pay the writer and you'll get my attitude. <laughs> he does a delightful video about paying the writers. It's not safe for work. <laughs> I've we, listened yeah, to that one. We'll, we'll put about, that in the show notes. Yeah, and we've talked here about we don't subscribe to the idea of the starving artist. We don't we don't believe no. in the starving author. So that yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I have okay, another question, Jana New. Yeah. I just want to know because this is so much work. You've talked about how much work this is. 
tell me um, why you still do it, why you even jumped into it. And then once you saw how much work it was, why you still decided to keep going with it. <laughs> it is a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. Um, one of my very first fiction publications was in an anthology. And, um, and it was a blast. And so I always thought, oh, that would be fun. And then I have been in many anthologies. I have stories in, and it's always been like, that's really cool. Um, it, it, it's fun to see, like Jana was saying, a theme come together with so many different people attra- attaching, uh, attaching, attacking that theme in different ways. It, it seemed like a lot of fun. Um, so when the opportunity came up for me to create an anthology of my own, I mostly reached out to people who were in that initial anthology that I was in as far as for submissions, but I got others as well. Um, and it was kind of a, hey, guys, you know, this is where I started. Now we're coming full circle and we're going to do this. And it was a lot of work. And I thought, God, I'm insane. <laughs> but when it was over and I held that book up in my hand and I'm just like, I love this. This was fun. And in the corporate world, I've done so many multi-contributor projects that aren't nearly as fun. This one was fun. It, yes, it was every bit as much work, but it was fun. And I got to I got to read stories, and I got to read lots of stories, and I got to read far more stories than I could publish, many of which were great. And, you know, and, and I enjoy that. So if I can take skills from my corporate life and apply them to fiction and put them in a pretty package and say, here, you get to enjoy it too, I'm going to keep on doing it. So here's here's my last question for you, unless CJ has one before we, we head on out. Um, actually, I have two last questions. So the first one, and this is a hard one, is of all of the 15 anthologies <laughs> that you have created, do you have a secret favorite? I know they're all like your children, but is there one that is just a little closer to your heart than all the others? Yeah, you're asking me which is my favorite child. Um, Uh (laughs) um, Okay, so out of, I'm working on the 16th anthology now. Out of the 16, I I don't know if I can say just one. I have a top three. Okay, let's go top three. Um, And this is not in any particular order. Um, We've mentioned Cat Ladies of the Apocalypse, and that is always going to be in my top three. Um, The... I have had cats. I am not a cat lady, but I have had cats. And yet I love this anthology. I love what the authors did with the cats and the, and their, the women and the relationships and the crazy apocalypse settings that they put them in. I, I love the way that, that book turned out. Um, this past year, Jana mentioned the uh, Diamond Quill from League of Utah Writers. That went to Street Magic. I have always been a fan of urban fantasy um, ever since I read my very first Jim Butcher novel and decided to play with it in short form. Um, I really enjoy street magic. It has some fabulous stories by some just top-notch writers in it. And yeah, even if I hadn't done it myself, I would totally say that it has earned that award. Um, And uh, Close the Raven, which is the uh, retelling of Edgar Allan Poe stories. Um, it took many of the Edgar Allan Poe stories and themes and put them into contemporary form. 
um, I inherit, or I actually adopted that one when the original intended publisher had to fold. And I wrote them and I said, you know, I love this concept. I love this theme. Would you have a problem with me, you know, just adopting your orphaned anthology? And they're like, cool. Uh, we haven't made any selections yet. We'll just forward you the submissions we got. I reopened the call, got more submissions. That's the one I told you. I got over 200 submissions for it. And uh, worked through it, and uh, we released it in time for the celebration of Poe's death that year. And uh, it was on the uh, Bram Stoker preliminary ballot. So very proud of that anthology. It is just a beautiful collection of slightly creepy stories. <laughs> and uh, Oh, some um, of them are very and, and creepy. Is, I've, I've read them. Some of them some are... Very yeah. creepy. Some of them are some of them are very creepy. Some of them are moody. Some of them are just beautiful. Again, it's it's like Poe. It's it's you know just a reimagining of Poe's work, and I have loved that anthology. So those would be my top three. But you know they're my babies. I love them all. All right. So this brings us to one of our arguably favorite parts of the show, and this is our moment of utter irrelevancy. So now everybody takes a turn to share something, and it can be anything you want, but it has to be utterly irrelevant to everything else that we've been talking about. So CJ, we're going to hit you first. What is your moment of absolute utter irrelevancy? Okay, so last night I could hear this tapping on my window. <laughs> and I think um, we all know, based on the previous um, episode we did about horror, that I am not a hard horror kind of gal. I do not like jump scares. I am I am all about the cutesy Halloween stuff, okay? Uh, but I have a vivid imagination. So this is not a good combination with the dark and night and noise and vivid imagination going on. So there was like thumping, like little like taps going on at my window. And I was so freaked out last night. So I grabbed um, something what what was it oh it was something heavy that i was like i'm taking this oh it was my brush not heavy at all never mind so i grabbed my brush <laughs> <laughs> and i was like this is a good weapon this is gonna do just fine and i open the door and i go to the back and i'm thinking to myself i'm doing exactly what i always tell the people in the books not to do don't go to the backyard where it's dark don't go there and do that. Oh, I did it. And so I'm just, I slide open the window. I'm looking back and I'm like, is anybody there? <laughs> Moron. Let's announce my presence. And I noticed that it was a little grasshopper jumping. Oh. Well, it was a big grasshopper, but it was a grasshopper <laughs> that just kept attacking my window. And I was both relieved and really annoyed and then felt a little sheepish about that. But um, yeah, so a grasshopper just scared the crap out of me last night. And that is all. That's my moment of irrelevancy. You're welcome. <laughs> Fantastic. Lynn, what's something you'd like to share today? What does the listening audience just need to know? That it is sadly now too cold for me to ride outside. Um, we had to pull the uh, top off of the outside pavilion yesterday my husband came in he's like are you going to realistically are you going to be working outside anymore this season and i looked at the i had to actually open up the weather app and look at what the uh predictions for weather were for the next 10 days and i'm like it's only going to get above 60 once in the next 10 days yeah sadly it's time to take the take the top off so that it doesn't get torn by the snow and uh 
no longer be able to work outside. So won't be working on my out in my summer office now until spring starts getting above 60 every day, preferably into the 70s. So, you know, and even though, I mean, weather here is so variable, who knows? We could have 70s again the week after next, but it's not happening. I'll be inside. The time has come. What about you, Dana? What I will share today is that um, I love Diet Dr. Pepper with coconut and limes in it. And I love my husband because he went and he got me 44 beautiful ounces to get me through the day. And and this is, if you see me drinking on camera, this is almost always what it is because I am a <laughs> Diet Dr. Pepper fiend. And when, when we discovered the coconut and the limes, and this is a Utah thing, it started kind of here and, and it has since spread across the nation, this idea of fancy sodas because a, a lot of folks here in Utah aren't big drinkers. And so we really, really love our soda. So on all sorts of corners, you'll find these little shops that are the, the soda this, the soda that, the fizz, the the zip, the whatever. And it's all about taking sodas and putting mix-ins in them and coming up with the craziest combinations. And I've tried some really crazy combinations, but but this one is mine. The the coconut and the lime, the lime and the coconut, and you drink it up. That that's me. And I will be doing that the rest of the day while I try to get some things cleaned up. So yeah. there we go. We we are all if you, go, if you go over if you go over there to uh to Sonic where you were and uh, look at their fresh lime. They have all the different mix-ins, and I just love it just plain, just the plain giant fresh lime. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. But mostly, mostly I'm at my Calamity Wear mug for my coffee, which is nearly empty now. Oh, well, ladies, it's been a fantastic time. Lynn, thank you so much for coming to join us today. I'm sure we will have you again. Um, you've got so many other talents going on that we we haven't yet delved into that we'll, we'll have to have you come back and join us again. So for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. You can find the show thank in the show notes, including all of Lynn's contact information at www.alantandigital.com. And you can follow the podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast distributor. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'll see you all later. Bye-bye now. Bye, guys. Bye.